Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. So uh, Matthew chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate you being with us. I hope you brought a Bible. If you didn't, um, you can look off the screen. It's a good thing, though, to bring a Bible to church, right? I'm still a little bit old school in that. In Matthew chapter 1, the next few messages, of course, are going to all be Christmas-centered. We launch a brand new series today called, Is He Worthy? Why Following Jesus uh, Matters More Than We Realize, right? The, why, why following Him closely matters more than we realize, And so this week, I want to talk specifically about Joseph. Next week, we will continue in talking uh, through characters of the Christmas narrative. And then we will, again, do so the following week, and then even on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I'm going to be talking to you uh, in this month about the Magi. The reason I'm doing it actually on Christmas is because they didn't show up actually until after the, the Christmas, which is very contrary to your nativity set, I understand, in your Christmas cards. But the Magi did not show up uh, on time, in anywhere close on time. They made a long journey from what we would say really far east of uh, Iraq, really, in the Babylonian Empire, what would have been that day the Persian Empire. Um, but there's so much there, so much within the Christmas story that we can look at, and I'm excited about it. If you're able to, I want to do something a little old school today, and that is, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, and go to verse 25. This is Matthew's account of Christ's birth. Now, the birth of Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example or spectacle of her, he was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, he had a hard time making a decision. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take to you, your Mary, your wife, for that which conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. She's betrothed that he called a wife. And so many people are like, that don't make sense. We have engagement or we have marriage. We'll talk about that extensively in a moment. And she'll bring forth a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, Isaiah, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, right, he was in a dream, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her. This is experiential knowledge. This is what we call sexual relationship, sexual intercourse. He did not know her experientially until she had brought forth her son, her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Called his name Jesus. I have a word of prayer. I want you to pray for me. I'm dealing with a little bit of physical infirmity this morning, health issues. I also want you to pray for Lindsay Talifus, who is the sister of Colby. Colby, I just got off the phone with as I came into church. His sister was... Burned badly. She's 27 years of age. Burned about 64% of her body, uh, her entire backside. She's just, they're just trying to get her stable so she can live right now. She lost three of her co-workers in a fire. Terrible, tragic accident. It's going to be about 120 days before she gets some new skin to even determine what is next steps. And so we're just going to pray for her and that we get some stability and that God would protect her. And there's going to be all kinds of survivor guilt and shame and, you know, all that goes along fear, PTSD, all of those things. So let's lift up Colby, lift up Lindsay is her name, and we'll, we'll ask God's blessing on today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as the people of God, centering on the greatest message the world ever had the opportunity to hear, about the greatest person the world ever had the opportunity to encounter, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son And Lord, we believe in him, and because we believe in him, we place our faith in him. You said, God, that we would never perish, but we would have everlasting life. And so, Lord, we celebrate that every time we come together, we celebrate our everlasting life. And Lord, I pray that you would broaden and deepen our understanding. And even though this text today is such a familiar text to us, Lord, we ask that we would gain a deeper appreciation, therefore a deeper adoration of you. 
Lord, we do pray for Lindsay Talifus that, Lord, the healing hand of God would be upon her and you would get her to a place of stability. Touch that family, strengthen them, God. We pray surround them with your songs of deliverance. I pray calm their fears, silence their fears, allow the peace of God to rule and reign in their hearts. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated this morning. But church, I want to say to us, I feel we've done a little bit of disservice to the person of Joseph in the Christmas story. And when I say that, it's, I say that's because we know he's there. Joseph is always there, right? But we have kind of, sort of regarded Joseph almost as a bystander in the Christmas narrative. He's just kind of there standing around. And yet, if it weren't for Joseph obeying God, humbling himself to carry out the command that he was given in this passage that you and I just read, there wouldn't be a Christmas for us to celebrate. I would propose to us that Joseph is one of the most overlooked characters in all of the Christmas characters. There are more sermons about the Old Testament Joseph than there are about the Joseph in the New Testament. Even our Christmas carols, I was thinking our hymnology this week, when it comes to Christmas, it usually centers around who? Jesus, as it should. But if not Jesus, then who else? It's Mary and Jesus. So one of the most famous Christian songs is Silent Night, which is, it's a hard stretch of the imagination. Because if you've ever been with a teenager when she's given birth, it's anything but silence, okay? But nonetheless, we call it Silent Night. And in Silent Night, it's Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright, round, yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Go look it up. There's not a word in the entire hymn about Joseph. I checked. Nowhere to be found in the hymnology. Another Christmas song. What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Great song. But you know who also had a lap? Joseph had a lap. And I'm guessing from time to time, toddler Jesus made his way to that lap as well. I'm guessing Jesus put his, his head in that lap many, many days. Many, many hours. No song about it. One of the fa- most famous, more recent songs that you, you all know how I feel about this song by Mark Lowry called Mary Did You Know. Okay? You know that song, Mary Did You Know That Your Baby Boy Would One Day Walk on Water. Mary Did You Know. I can't sing, but I can talk sing. Well, I just want to say, first of all, Mary knew. Okay? Mary had a revelation from God. She absolutely knew, right? So we can settle that once and for all. But number two, I would also say, Joseph, what did you know? Why don't we sing, Joseph, did you know? Our hymnology never brings Joseph to the table because he also had a revelation from God. We're about to see that. There are other things and songs in the Christmas season. Amy Grant, my wife's favorite Christmas song, sings Breath of Heaven or also known as Mary's song. The words are, I have traveled many moonless nights, cold and weary with a babe inside, and I wonder what I've done. Holy Father, you've come and chosen me now to carry your son. It is a beautiful song. But Joseph was also chosen by God not to carry the son, but to provide an early childhood for that boy. Another song by the group Koine called Gentle Mary. Gentle Mary laid her child lowly in a manger. There he lay, the defiled, to the world a stranger. Well, Gentle Mary was there, but Gentle Joseph was also there. No word about him. It is fascinating to me that Christian artists have still not written a Christmas song about Joseph. It quite honestly, it's, it's, it, I mean, it, it's really amazing to think 2,000 years of the Advent season and we don't have Josephology songs. A famous song that's been around for a little while, Mary's Boy. Mary's Boy, Jesus Christ, was born on Christmas Day and man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. All true. But after Christmas Day, Joseph was in charge, not Mary. Joseph was in charge of training the child with a trade. Joseph was in charge of training the child with an occupation. Many, many hours of investment into the Son of God. It is so blatant absence of Joseph from the Christmas story that most people just regard him as a bystander. It's so blatant that I've entitled the message for today, Jesus Christ our Lord. But then my second part of that message title is Joseph... The bystander or the face in the background. Now I say that facetiously because Joseph actually had a front row seat to this story. 
And today what I want us to do for the first half of this message is put ourselves in his sandals, so to speak, and look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph, the adoptive father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, they came together, and she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, the Bible says in verse 25, he, didn't say she, he called his name Joseph, or Jesus, I should say. He called his name Jesus. I want to talk to you about how Joseph gave us Christmas. Now, some of you, I know you're thinking, boy, that's sort of a misleading statement because, frankly, Joseph did not give us Christmas. He had nothing at all to do with the impregnation of Mary, his wife. We know that it was a virgin birth. It was an immaculate conception. She was conceived, or I would say Jesus was conceived in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit in her womb. Joseph is simply the adoptive father in the story. But as I mentioned, he's not actually a bystander. He provides provides the necessary framework within Judaism, the social framework for the raising of Jesus in this culture. It was Joseph who loved Mary through a very strange pregnancy. We're about to see it. A very suspect pregnancy that even he at first thought was very suspect. And he will ultimately be resolved to raise the Lord Jesus. So I found this video a few years back. It's The idea is called a social network Christmas. So if Facebook would have been around in the first century, what do you think Christmas might have looked like? We're going to play that for you. Make sure that volume's up for me.
social network Christmas, right? Let's take a look for a few moments at this very vivid dream, as was stated in the video. I want to show you five stages, five emotional stages that Joseph went through as I have read it in this story. And because we mentioned a social network Christmas, I'm going to get a little bit of help from some emojis that you probably are very familiar with. So the first emotion that Joseph had with Mary is this. The first emotion of Joseph is excitement. There's deep-seated excitement. So Joseph and Mary, they get engaged. They are betrothed. He's excited. This is what he feels like. Notice verse 18 in your text again. It says, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, nobody gets betrothed anymore. We get engaged in our culture. But in those days, engagement... Well, uh, engagement happened when children were quite young. So engagement didn't happen in the teenage years. It happened when kids were very infants in, or in grade school. That's when engagement took place. Their parents got them engaged. Their parents made a decision through arranged marriage that my Johnny and your little Sarah, they're going to be married one day. You made the decision as parents. They, the kids, had nothing at all to do with marriage. Now, I've got a lot of implications for that based upon my marriage counseling and my look in the 21st century. And I'll give you some of those in just a moment. Then there were two stages in the marriage. There was called the kiddoshin. The kiddoshin is a Hebrew word that means betrothal. This lasted about a year. It was 12 months. So it was a formal ceremony where you were to go to a synagogue and you were to be pledged for marriage. It was, it was an absolutely formal contract. You were already to be considered husband and wife, yet you had no physical relations for 12 months. So when you were first betrothed, Kiddoshin, you came together, formal contract, you signed it, you committed, but you could not have sex for an entire year, right? This is, this is what took place. And the only way you could break that off once you were betrothed is a formal ceremony of divorce. So that happened for about a year, right? The Kiddoshin. The second part of the ceremony is called the Hupa. It almost sounds like hoopla, but it's Hupa. And the hoopah is the formal marriage ceremony where after a year you go back to typically the same synagogue and you go through a ceremony with all your friends and your family and it's a huge celebration. Now in hearing that, most modern Americans, when we hear that idea, we kind of recoil at the idea that our parents would choose a mate for them, especially when they're so young and they've not even met that person yet. But Hebrew parents felt that matters of the heart were way too important to leave to teenagers to make the decision. They, they thought it was way too important of a decision to allow a person in, in puberty or post-puberty to make that decision, right? You'd see a girl and say, man, I really like that girl. I'm going to marry that girl. And the parent's just like, man, that is way too frivolous. So we'll make that decision for you. And we hear that, I know we do, and we're like, man, I hate that idea. We should be able to pick our own. Oh, by the way, something else real quick. Usually the betrothal happened when the girl was 13 or 14, sometimes 12. We have a lot of first century uh, documents where they're 12. Mary, therefore, when she was betrothed to Joseph, is probably, according to the culture of the time, between 13 or 14, but Mary could also be 12. I have a 12-year-old in my house, okay? This is why Christmas story is coming alive in a new way. Now, Joseph was nowhere near 12. This is why Joseph was dead before Jesus gets to his earthly ministry. The last moment we get of Joseph is in Luke 2 when Jesus is 12. He was so much older than Mary, he died before Jesus could make it to 30. He's, he's an older man marrying a 12-year-old. Now, it's crazy in our context. A 13, a 14-year-old virgin being betrothed to this man named, named Joseph. And, and again, we hear that and we go, man, much too young to get married. And, pa- and, ma- and parents making the decision for you, that's nuts. I would only say to that, only given the current divorce and marriage statistics that I see today in not just uh, America, but the church, I don't think we've done a much better job. I don't think we have. Today, people get engaged later. They break up earlier. And they just say, no big deal. We'll move on with our lives. We go into marriage with the lack of the presumption of its permanence. It's not true for this culture. In fact, I saw a picture that a girl had signed to her boyfriend. And it said, Dearest Tom, on the back is a picture of herself. And gave it to Tom. It said, Dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more and more and more each and every day. I love you forever and ever. I'm yours for all eternity. 
And at the very bottom of the picture said, P.S., if we ever break up, I want the picture back. Okay. Not much commitment in that. So when they were betrothed, I'm just saying that Joseph felt this. He felt this overwhelming excitement. When we in our culture get engaged, what is our first emotion? Our first emotion is excitement. Uh, in September of 2006, I got Meredith up early in the morning and drove from Chattanooga to Atlanta, got on a plane and flew her to New York City without her knowing. And I took her all through New York City and asked her to marry me later that evening in Bryant Park in New York City. And then we got back on the subway and came back to LaGuardia, flew all the way back to Atlanta that same evening and drove all the way back to, Ch- to Chattanooga. It was about a 23 and a half hour day. You can, I can tell you we were really, really, really excited. We made it to church. It was a Saturday. We made it to church the next Sunday. And it was weird because Meredith only worshipped with her left hand, not her right hand that Sunday. It was just amazing how she was up front and she was just all left hand. It was like her right hand wouldn't go up. But that left hand, boy, it was worshipping Jesus on that Sunday, right? This is excitement, a lot of excitement. We know that Joseph was a carpenter. We're told that in Matthew chapter 13, he had a trade and he worked in Nazareth. So here is Joseph probably dreaming about the wedding ceremony and the honeymoon and all guys do dream of that. The life they're going to have afterwards, how many kids they're going to have. They're in the process of talking about all of that. So that's the first emotion that Joseph felt is excitement. Now, the second emotion that Joseph felt in the story, as I see it, is this. Shock. Shock. Why shock? Because look at verse 18. Mary was found with child. Okay, stop right there for a moment. That would put a wrinkle in the relationship. She was found with child. That would cause any guy to go from this to this pretty quickly. Okay? Very, very quickly. But I imagine that ultimately in this moment with Joseph, Mary was found with child. Now, I don't know where Joseph was when he got the news that Mary was pregnant. I don't know exactly who told Joseph the news. Could have been Mary herself. But I imagine that when he heard the news that she's with child, it's like somebody sucked all the air out of the room. There's no more oxygen to breathe. And I'm just going to pretend you follow me for a moment. Maybe he was in a shop and he's in his carpentry shop and he's making a little sign for Mary. And he's carving it out of the wood that said, Joseph loves Mary. And just as he's putting the finishing touches on the sign, he hears the news that she is with child. Now, I can only imagine what Joseph's friends would have said in that moment. I don't know. I've worked around carpenters before. If you're a carpenter, with all due respect, if you're a Christian carpenter, I pray for you. People in the the building business can be direct. We'll say it that way, okay? In their language, their innuendos, their nuance how they deal with life. And I'm sure that Joseph heard things like, come on, Joseph, we know you did it. Oh, you really going to marry this girl? Are you kidding? If she did it to you before marriage, if she cheated on you once, she's going to be unfaithful to you again. You need to dump that girl. Get rid of Mary. You see, in those days, sexual purity was very much highly, highly regarded. By the way, it is still with God, highly regarded. God puts it on a high plane, even though America doesn't. But in that culture, it was just understood that someone would just stay pure before marriage. They would just remain pure until that moment. Now, what I would like for you to do with me is look at another set of events that are happening simultaneous to the events that we're looking at. In Luke chapter 1, we've seen the story from Joseph's perspective. And we're going to continue in that. But in Luke chapter 1, we see the events leading up to the angel Gabriel giving the same message, this time not to Joseph, but to, to Mary. A very familiar Christmas story. Verse 26, Luke chapter 1, here it is. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city named Galilee, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord's with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. And behold, you will in your womb conceive and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. Mary, you won't be great. He will be great. And he will be called Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so what does Mary say to the angel? How can this be since I do not know a man? I've not had any intimate relationships with any man. 
And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called a Son of God. And now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her own age. And this now is, the sixth, is now in the sixth month of her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Watch this. Angel visits Mary. Mary can't figure out how this is possible. Angel leaves. She thinks, i got to process this with somebody. Angel says, I got you. Go see your cousin Elizabeth. She knows something about miraculous birth. She's an old lady and she's pregnant right now. She'll take you through it. She'll walk you through it. So Mary, watch this, goes down to Judea and spends three months... If you go over to chapter, uh, uh, same chapter, verse 56, it says, Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her house. So down in Judea, three months, which means Mary has three months to process this. So by the time Joseph finds out, Mary's already worked through all of this in her mind for three months. Joseph has not yet gotten a chance to work through his mind. She's now had three months 90 days to be able to work through the mental capacity. By the time she gets back to Nazareth, she's now in her third month, maybe slightly showing. Usually with your first one, you're slower to show. Maybe there's a little baby bump by this time, typically when it starts to grow. Joseph finds out. He's not had three months to process this, and it's like, (gasps) you're what? Gasp, right? So he is what? He is shocked. But you know what it's like whenever you read a story or you watch a movie in a a movie unfold, and you know the events that are going on behind the scenes. The main character doesn't know the events. I got to tell you, friends, the main character, so let's say it's a murder, and a murderer's chasing a woman through the town, and the murderer sneaks into her house in advance and hides in a closet, and she goes in the house, and she goes from room to room, and the camera shows the guy in the closet, but the girl that's the main character doesn't know that the guy's in the closet, but you do by watching the movie, and you know he's there and she doesn't, so what do you do? You, because that's the way you are in movies, begin to yell at the screen. And you begin to yell at the screen, telling the woman who doesn't know that the man enters the closet, don't go in the closet. Please don't go. He's in the closet. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't do you any good to, te- to say that, right? When I read the story of Joseph in Matthew 1, I want to say to Joseph, keep reading, dude, don't start. You're only in the first gospel. Keep going. Matthew, Mark, Luke, you're going to get the information. The angel will visit you too. Just keep going, okay? Keep on moving, Joseph. You've got to get to Luke chapter 1. There's information you don't know about yet. But he goes from excitement to shock. He goes from yippee to, uh uh-oh, she's pregnant immediately. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been surprised by a bit of news like that? Life is going good for you, doctor calls. Uh, Sir, we got the test results. You have an unmarried daughter who comes to you with tears and says, Mom, I'm pregnant. Or your boss says, hey, we're downsizing and your name is on the list. Bye. Or the bank calls and says, "Um, we're going to foreclose on this house. It's shocking when you hear that bit of news. Or how about this one? The world's in a pandemic. Just give us two weeks, flatten the curve. Right? Two weeks. Imagine what it was like to hear the word, sweetheart, I'm pregnant. Total shock. This takes us to a third experience, emotional experience that Joseph has in the story. This is the third experience. Confusion. Joseph is now deeply, deeply confused. Why is he confused? Well, if you look back at the text again with me, verse 19, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, previously, all of Joseph's thoughts were relation. He was thinking about the ceremony. He was thinking about the honeymoon. He's thinking about their business. He was thinking about their family they're going to build together. All the dreams, all the hopes. Not anymore. He has none of those thoughts anymore. No, no, no. Now all of his thoughts are, what am I going to do with my pregnant girlfriend? What am I going to, what, how do I make sense of this? What can Jesus do about his, or what Joseph do about his pregnant girlfriend? Well, herein lies the confusion, church. Um, in that day and age and culture, there were three options. Everybody say three. Three options Joseph had. Number one, he could expose her publicly as being an unfaithful spouse. So option number one is he could take her and expose her publicly. Why? Because the period of betrothal, which I told you, called the 12-month period, was a formal contract, and no physical relations were allowed 
but it, but, but it was a form of contract. So if that contract was broken by a pregnancy, the man could have, according to Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, he could have brought her out in front of the community and exposed her publicly. And what would they have done to a woman like that? They would have killed her. Mary would have been killed on the spot with the Son of God. She would have been killed. She would have been stoned to death. You say, would they really stone her to death? Yes, that was an option. Now maybe in that day she couldn't have been stoned because after all the Romans had taken over and they denied the Jews' right to exercise capital punishment. That was reserved only for the Roman government. We see this later in the crucifixion story. No one else can condemn except the Roman government. But nonetheless, they could have tried that and exposed her and shamed her publicly. That's option number one. Option number two, he could privately divorce her. What do you mean? All he had to do was give her a handwritten notice of divorce and the certificate would be witnessed by two other witnesses and it would be done. Option number three, he could marry her. According to Exodus 22, if you go read the text, if a young couple who's betrothed, step one, if she ends up pregnant and presumably the baby in her stomach is the, physical, the result of the physical relation between that man and her, they could get married. That was permissible under the law. Problem is, Joseph had nothing to do with it. So Joseph opts for option number two. I'm going to privately divorce her. I'm going to get a rabbi. We won't let anybody know. We'll get this thing settled. And that's just Joseph's way of showing some compassion for Mary. I'm just going to do it privately. Nobody will know. Yes, eventually everybody will know because she's pregnant. She's going to be showing. But, you know, her showing is her problem, not my problem. But to show her a little compassion, I'm not going to expose her publicly. I'm certainly not going to marry her, so I'll just divorce her privately. Those are the three options he had. Now, sadly, if Joseph had been living today, there would be a fourth option. And that is, Mary, I'll give you $1,000 and you go terminate the pregnancy, the unwanted pregnancy. But let me just go ahead and throw that out here for our American culture. In that day, in those days, that's not even a thought of option. With the sanctity of life and the realization of life, the imago dei in every life that's being born, it was not even thought of. So what does Joseph do? He opts for number two. I'm going to divorce her privately. But he's still confused about it because look in verse 20. It says, while he thought about these things. So they're bouncing around his brain. He thinks, I'm going to divorce her. No, I'm not. He's confused. I'm not sure of what I'm going to do, which leads to a fourth emotional state that I think it is in this story, and it's this one. Here is the fourth emotional experience of Joseph. What's this? This is fear. This is fear. So what do you mean? Verse 20. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be, do not be afraid. Now the only reason you tell somebody not to be afraid is because they are afraid. They're very afraid. They're very fearful. The angel said, son of Joseph, do not be afraid. To what? Take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. What's he afraid of? I want to suggest to you some things he's afraid of. First of all, he's afraid of the future. He's afraid of the gossip. He's afraid of the talk. He's afraid of the slander. The people are going to be blaming him. Maybe he's afraid for Mary's future. What's going to become of Mary? I'm going to divorce her privately, but then what? What's her life going to be like then? I love her. I'm, I'm afraid for her. A number of things he could be afraid of, but while he was thinking about all these things, he got really tired. As often happens, when people are in a heightened emotional state, they grow weary. That's why you don't make decisions in heightened emotional states. And so in this heightened emotional state, he gets real sleepy. And so what does he do? He falls asleep. And when he sleeps, he enters into a dream state, we're told here. And an angel came and spoke to him. Now everybody, whether you want to admit it or not, dreams every night. You go, I don't dream. Well, you might not remember your dream, but dream experts say, and I have over 20 Sources to this, I woke up this morning and another one came, popped on my phone because I've been looking at them. You know how the algorithm works. 20 sources say you dream between four to six times every night of your life. And in total, you go through about two hours of dreaming. So last night, you had two hours of dreams last night. Whether you remember them or not, totally different issue. Now, I speak for me, I typically don't remember all my dreams. But my son, he'll sometimes have dreams, and in his dreams, he's articulate. He'll say things. You know, y'all know what I'm talking about, parents? The kids are having full conversations in the other room in the middle of the night. You're like, what is going on? It's like 3.15. So he'll, have, he'll say all kinds of words. His sister's not so much like him, but he does uh, uh, definitely. Uh, several months back, uh, I was in the middle of a dream. I won't, well, I'll tell you a little bit of the dream. Um, 
was in the dream and I was being chased by a little miniature T-Rex. Two T-Rexes. Two Tyrannosaurus Rexes. And I was being chased. And I got into the house. True story. Got into the house. We're in our, our, this is our house before the one we're in now. And I get into the house and I run into, a, it's not my house, but I ran into a bedroom and I get into a closet where the door's shut like this, but I left a little crack so I could still see out into the bedroom. And the bedroom door starts slowly opening and two T-Rexes step in. It's miniature. They're less than five feet. And when they do, they, one starts working his way over to the closet and when he gets, you know, short arms, right when he gets close to the closet, I take my leg and kick through the, the closet door to kick him. Well, the clicking, the kicking through the closet door was my wife's leg. And she wakes up, it wakes me up in a, I mean, it was the biggest bruise. I mean, a monster, monster bruise. And I kicked the T-Rex right out of my wife's calf, okay? I mean... Uh, it's, so in our dreams, some funny things or some scary things happen. Now, now, now let, me, let, me, let me pull you in here. Here's the funny thing about sleep or nighttime. At night, your troubles seem bigger than they do in the day. At night, sometimes you wake up and then it's because of a dream that you have. Because you de- what, why? Because you deal with unresolved problems dear, uh, that are unresolved during the day. You deal with them at night. And this is what's bad. This is the bad personality type of being a late night owl. Because if I'm moving really, really quick, which is like all days right now, and you get to the night, whatever's unresolved, good luck with sleep, good luck with going to sleep. It's time to think, and it's time to resolve some issues. And so you deal with all those unresolved issues. And there's a number of kind of dreams people can have. Some people have falling dreams. You ever had a falling dream? You're falling off a building? Falling dreams usually denote fear of insecurity or anxiety that your life is out of control. Then there are chasing dreams. Anybody ever had chasing dreams? Maybe not T-Rexes, but other, other pursuers? It's indicating an impending threat or being in a stressful situation that have, you've not found resolve or direction for. Then some people have trap dreams. What are trap dreams? You're trapped in a cage, trapped in a room. That usually indicates fear of being restrained or you're restricted in life. Joseph had an angel dream. But this wasn't just a dream manufactured by his own brain chemistry. This was a dream maintained and controlled by God himself. It was in a dream, but the Bible says that the angel came and told Joseph in verse 21, three things are going to happen, Joseph. Mary's going to have a baby, you're going to name the baby, and that baby's going to save the world. Now, if what Mary told him seemed crazy, then what the angel told him seemed crazier. She said, I'm pregnant. The angel said, she's going to have a baby. I'm pregnant. What? You're going to name that baby Jesus. That baby's going to save the world from their sin. It was the message. Well, that dream was enough to talk Joseph off the ledge of fear. And then Joseph ends up having a final emotion. And that's this one. The final emotion of Joseph. This is resolve. Resolve. What do you mean? I am resolved to carry out the part of God's plan. Finally, Joseph got to the point where he was settled that this is good and this is part of God's plan and I'm going to carry out God's plan. Verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. He woke up and he obeyed. They got married. It was a good dream, a really good dream. Now Joseph feels relieved. Joseph is now grateful to be part of God's plan to save the world. So they go to a rabbi and they get her done. They got married. Joseph was resolved. Joseph was resolved. I remember in my own wedding day, I was resolved. Resolved to say, Lord, till death do us part. Now, not only was he resolved to do it, but look at verse 25. You, you add sort of a little note to that. It says, and Joseph did not know her. That is, he did not have intimate physical relations with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. So watch this. Not only is Mary committed to this process, Joseph is committed and would not touch her physically till the baby was born. You say, Craig, why is that important? Let me tell you why it's important. Why does Matthew add that? Why does Matthew go out of his way to communicate that? So that you know Joseph's state of mind during this time. He was so resolved, it's as if he was saying, I don't want anyone saying that I had anything to do with what God is doing with you, Mary. I had no part of that. I don't want any gossip. I don't want any rumors going around. I'm not even going to touch you until this baby is born. I want everybody in this culture to know this is a God thing. 
Now, friends, can I tell you, for Joseph, this is not an easy decision. This is not the easy part. The dreaming part was the easy part. And after you wake up from the dream, the future is the hard part. Looking into the face of, of something that doesn't look anything like you thought it would do and nothing to do with that birth, but saying to Mary, I'm committed to raising this child and the fear and the admonition of the Lord to follow God's plan. That took courage. And then you know what Joseph does? He takes them to Bethlehem. And that's a dangerous journey. And once they get there, there's Herod, who wants to kill anybody who claims to be king. And we know the story tells us. Then he's going to whisk them off to Egypt for two years. So he's leaving the country. He's starting all over with a new occupation. And he's doing what? He's living for his family. Then after that, he's going to come back up to Nazareth with all of his family and all of his friends and all his carpenter buddies who can figure out dates and pregnancy schedules and their tongues are going going to wag and the, and the gossip's going to fly for years to come. All of that simply to say this, and I want you to hear me, men. Listen to me, young men. Listen to me, older men. Obedience to God is never easy. It's never easy. And if you think, well, once I decide to obey God and do His will, everything's going to flow smoothly. No, sometimes the right thing is the hard thing. And you know what Joseph does? He makes the hard choice. So let me just give you a few lessons from Joseph real quick. Number one, families work best when Jesus is at the center. Families work best when Jesus is at the center. That's sort of the big obvious picture here, but families work better when Christ is at the center. At first, Joseph did not know this. He did not know Jesus was to be the center of the story, not only his family, but of world history. He found that out in a dream. He decided, I'm going to put Jesus as the center of my family where he should be. I wish that all families would put Jesus at the center. Their family life would be better, can I tell you that? Families work best when Christ is at the center. Lesson number two, sometimes the best decisions are the hardest decisions. It would be a whole lot easier for Joseph to get that private divorce, put her away secretly. Life would be a whole lot easier for him. Life would be a whole lot harder for Joseph to take this child down to Bethlehem or or this woman down to Bethlehem, have the baby, go to Egypt, go back, all of the stuff that's going to happen. Sometimes the best decisions are the hardest decisions. And number three, The world needs more Josephs. The world, particularly our part of the world, needs men of integrity like never before. Joseph was a just man. Just men. It means righteous. He decided, I'm going to do the right thing, no matter if it's easy or hard. The right thing is to honor God. The right thing is to marry this woman. The right thing is to raise this child. The world needs men of integrity, men who will follow God's will. Now, because Joseph faithfully passed those emotional tests, he was able to father, in that sense, the Son of God. Now, this series is called, Is He Worthy? So I want you to turn with me for our last passage today to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 2. We have, over the last few months, been looking at God and His attributes, and we kind of are going to pivot for a moment in this Joseph story and concentrate on the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, start with me, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 8. Therefore God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, that those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now church, the name Charles Templeton is not probably a name you're familiar with. Most people aren't. But many years ago it was said of Charles Templeton, who was an evangelist at the time, he was a preacher for an organization called Youth for Christ. They said of him, he's the most gifted and talented young man in America when it comes to preaching. Yet you've probably never heard of him. But you have heard of his associate at the time who was a young evangelist from North Carolina by the name of Billy Graham. The associate of Charles Templeton was a man named Billy Graham. Billy Graham went on to be the world's finest, most famous evangelist, preaching the gospel to more people in history than any other single human being, including Paul. The uh, Reinhard Bonnke would probably be the only one that's, that's close with the millions of crusades he's done in Africa. Charles Templeton did not. That's because five years after they made that announcement concerning him, he walked away from Christ altogether. He walked away from the faith. He said he didn't believe anymore. Watch this. 
50 years later, a man by the name of Lee Strobel decided to hunt him down to find where he lived because he was writing a book called The Case for Faith. He wanted to interview a man who was such gifted as a preacher why he walked away from his faith. So he met Charles Templeton in his home. He was now in his mid-80s at the time. His health was starting to fail a little bit, but he was very cognizant. He was still very with it. And so, so Strobel conducted an interview. And in the interview, one of the questions he asked him is, What do you think of Christ now, Charles? What do you think of Jesus Christ? And Charles Templeton said concerning Christ, He was the greatest human being, they'll put it on the screen, who ever lived. Everything good I ever know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus Christ. And then unexpectedly, Templeton's voice began to crack as an 85-year-old and tears welled up in his eyes and he uttered these words, but boy, do I miss him. Boy, do I miss Jesus. I miss him. Now here's a man who 50 years before said, I want nothing to do with him. And 50 years later, he's saying, I miss him. And by the way, after he said that, he covered his face with his hands and he wept like a baby. Very obvious that Jesus Christ had a significant impact even still in the life of this man. And that's because, let me tell you, church, Jesus is the most compelling and captivating personality in all of history. All of human history. I want you just for a moment to follow just a little sampling of some testimonials of different famous people through history and what they said of Jesus. First of all, Albert Einstein. This is what Albert Einstein said. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled, next slide, by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Then there was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. The British author H.G. Wells admitted this, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth Nazareth is irrevocably the, the very center of human history. Jesus Christ is the most dominant figure in all of history. Another novelist from the 1800s in Russia, Theodore Dostoevsky, he said, I believe there's no one deeper, no one lovelier, more sympathetic and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone like him. And my favorite famous person quote about Jesus is from Elvis Presley himself. And Elvis Presley said, no, honey, I'm not the king. Christ is the king. I'm just a singer. I'm just a singer. I've often, listened to me, look at me, I've often found that the people who reject Christ do so because they're rejecting Christians more than they're rejecting Christ. Christ still to this day is the most captivating personality in human history. In Philippians chapter 2, what we just read in verse 5, it deals in a nutshell with the life of Jesus. It speaks principally of the incarnation of Christ. Can you say that with me? Say incarnation. If you've never heard that term, let me just say, we're not referring to a flower. It's referring to a miraculous event of God becoming a man. Philippians 2, 5-11 is a Christological gem. One author said it's the greatest and most moving passage that Paul ever wrote about Christ. Most scholars believe Philippians 2, 5-11 was a hymn that was sung by the early church. And that's why some of your Bible versions, if you'll see it, they have it over in poetic fashion. You'll see the margin. You'll see it indented in your Bible. Because it became a creed, and then it became recited, then it became a hymn that was sung. And it shows in that one section, church, how God reaches out to humanity. Someone once said, you can tell the depth of the whale by how much the rope is lowered. This section is God lowering the rope and showing the depth of the whole of sin and how God actually reached down completely in his own personhood to save us. One of my favorite authors was a guy by the name of Donald Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and watch this. He said, love that reaches up is adoration. Love that reaches out is affection. But love that stoops down is grace. In this section, Philippians 2, God is stooping. And it's about how he stoops. So these are three mountain peaks of the personality of Christ. His humility, his glory, and his, his mentality. His, men, his humility is how he humbled himself. He humbled himself. 
In verse 5, Paul writes, now I'm reading from the New King James Version, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Folks, these verses take us back into eternity past. And they describe Christ before he came to the earth, before he humbled himself. And Paul says he humbled himself in three ways in his birth in his life, and in his death. Church, watch. Next slide. Imagine Satan's unhinged frustration when he learned that thousands of years of building a wicked kingdom would be wiped out by one baby. One baby would usurp him in his kingdom. The Christ child. And Paul says he humbled himself. And he's referring to Christ who being in the form of God. Now let me give you a little quick note. And I'm going to tie this up. It's important to the text. It says being in the form. Everybody say form. The word form used in this translation, who being in the form of God, is from the Greek word morphe. We would spell that M-O-R-P-H-E, morphe. You're familiar with the word. It's right in the middle of the word metamorphosis or morphological. We talk about things morphing, people morphing. We usually mean changing form. But the word morphe in the Greek speaks about the essential form or nature that doesn't change. Did you get that? The essential form or nature of something that never changes. Now, there's another Greek word for form that it means change, and that's the Greek word schema, S-C-H-E-M-A. Schema refers to the outward form that does change. So here's an example. Watch this. Our essential form, our morphe, is that we're human beings. You're a human. I'm a human. That never changes. You're always human. I'm always human. But you have a schema that changes in outward form. So the way you look now, you didn't look like 10 years ago. And the way you look now, you didn't look like 20 years ago. You're changing your outward schema. But the morphe stays the same. Did you know everybody in this room began as a two-celled entity called a zygote? Z-Y-G-O-T-E. Maybe never, nobody ever called you a zygote before, but you were one. And then you kept changing your outward form again. You became an embryo. Then you kept changing. You became a fetus. You kept changing. Then you were a newborn. And then after a newborn, you changed again. That's your schema. You're still human, morphe, but the outward form schema is changing. After a newborn, you were a toddler. After a toddler, you were a small child. You were then a preteen. Then you were a teenager. Then you were an adult. Then you were an ornery adult. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the case. You're a kind, loving, generous adult. So what Paul is saying by, by using the word like that, he's saying Jesus Christ possesses the unchangeable, essential nature of God. And he says, look at the word being. Who being in the form of God. That's present active. It means he always has been and he presently continues to be. That's why Jesus could say, church, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Understand that. He never became a God. Jesus never became a God. He was God before Bethlehem. He was God pre-human. That's his essential morphe, his essential form. But then Paul says, who being in the form of God, now get this, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You might go, whoa, what on earth does that mean? Did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Well, that word robbery means to grab or to clutch or to hold on to, to seize something. If you ladies are walking with your purse in a crowd and somebody bumps up into you and attempts to grab or to seize your, your purse, you clutch it tighter. You grab it tighter. You might belt the guy in the face for doing so, but you grab a hold of it. You don't release it. You don't let go of it. You clutch it. So what Paul is saying here is Jesus, his form, his morphe, his essential unchanging nature is God. But surrounded with all the privileges of that, he didn't think holding on to that was important. So he released that to go on a mission. He let let go of that. Now just keep that in mind. I'm going to flush that out for you. He goes in verse 7. He said he made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bond servant. Coming in the likeness of men. Now that phrase made himself of no reputation. Literally means to empty. He emptied himself of content. So if I had. I thought about doing it today. If I had a pitcher of water on the platform. And I decided. I was going to turn it over. And empty out all of the water. Into a, a bucket. The Bible says he made himself of no reputation. It's a Greek word, kenosis. 
He divested. He emptied. So Jesus, whose essential nature was God and is God, didn't think that holding on to all the privileges of God was important, but he released. He divested. He emptied himself. Now the question becomes, what does he empty himself of? Well, he doesn't empty himself of deity. Don't ever think that Jesus for a moment stopped being God when he came to the earth to redeem us. Listen, go on KSU's campus. That's where nine out of ten cults are going to take you. That when Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of deity. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. When he says he emptied himself, he divested himself, he can't empty himself of his nature. That's who he is. He's God. He, who he is, who he was, who always be. What did he empty himself of then? Two things. He emptied himself of privilege. Or let's say the prerogatives of his deity. For example, the glory of heaven, the anthem of angels, the presence of angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, who gave constant praise and glory. He gave that environment up for you and me. That's seen in the prayer of Jesus in John 17 when Jesus prayed, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Glorify me again, Jesus, saying I want it back. I've been here 33 years, Father. I want that glory back. He gave that up. He gave up the prerogatives of his deity. Second thing he emptied himself of is he emptied himself of independent authority. In other words, while he was on the earth, he voluntarily surrendered and submitted to the will of the one who was the Father in heaven. So he said in John 5, I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to go to the cross. He said, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, let it be. That's how he felt. That's what he wanted. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Folks, that's the exact opposite of Satan's philosophy. Satan said, not thy will, but my will be done. Next slide, listen to me. Satan was a creature who wanted to be the creator. Jesus was in fact the creator who surrendered to being a creature. That's love stooping. That's humility. I'll leave heaven, Father. Surrender, surrender myself to you for this plan, for this purpose. So that's the humility of his birth. He came in the likeness of man. But then he entered into a physical body. He entered into a permanent physical body. Jesus, who had the unchangeable, essential nature of God, also took on, at a point in time and space, the essential, unnature, uh, unchanging nature of man. Jesus was the one and only God-man. And folks, listen, when he ascended back into heaven, he ascended there physically. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the throne of God. It's interesting to think about, but I don't know how many Christians I've talked to who think that Jesus, when he became a man, they don't realize that he's now inextricably linked to flesh for the rest of eternity. He can never go back. It's glorified flesh. But right now, next to the Father, there's a man. It's a ma he's a man at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. And he will return to earth physically one day, both natures. My favorite author said, The tongue that called forth the dead was a human one. The hand that touched the leper had dirt under its fingernails. The feet upon which the women wept were calloused and dusty. And his tears, oh, don't miss the tears. They came from a heart as broken as yours and mine has ever been. What this means is that when Jesus cut himself, he bled. When he stumbled up a stairway, his shins hurt. When he slept at night, he probably snored. I know you don't like to think of Jesus that way, but that's the limitations of humanity. And when Jesus went through the incarnation, it would be considered the ultimate cross-cultural experience. You ever travel to third world countries? You know what it's like to have a cross-cultural experience? You go to a place 103 degrees and 98% humidity, and you live there for a few weeks, and it can be brutal. You go, man, this is different. I miss air conditioning really badly. I can't have a, had a McDonald's hamburger for weeks now. Now think of leaving heaven and coming to the Dust Bowl of Bethlehem and living in Nazareth and marching up and down Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And he took on the form of a bondservant, a very nature. He didn't act like a servant. He served 
people. He served fishermen. He served harlots. He served sick people. He served suffering people. He said the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for men. In the upper room, he put on a towel like a servant would. He bent down and washed the disciples' dirty feet, Peter's feet, Judas's feet. He cleaned them like a slave would, the form of a bondservant. And as I was reading back through the gospel again this week, it just hit me afresh and anew. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, there was a little bit of pushback from Peter, and then Peter was all in. Right after that, Jesus would go into the Kidron Valley and then be arrested and start his trial. And every disciple except John and Mary would desert Jesus, and they run all over the city that night. I imagine some of them cross the valley and went to the Mount of Olives and they finally sat down and they look back across at the city and they see the lights and Herod's Praetorium and they see the Sanhedrin where Jesus is on trial and they've abandoned him. And they look down at their feet and they realize Jesus washed and showed me grace before I ever even knew I needed it. He washed the feet that were literally about to run away from him when he needed them most. There's no one like Jesus. Is he worthy? (laughs) Is Jesus worthy? He's worthy. He's worthy. Watch this. God left his place. He came to our place. He took our place. And then he invites us back to his place. That's the gospel. And in the midst of the hustle and bustle and all that happens in the Advent season, come on team, I wanted to kick off this month with just having our hearts realigned, our minds' attention and hearts' affection on the gospel, on Jesus. And realize, you know what? If it wasn't for a Joseph who's willing to obey God in hard, difficult commands and challenges, there would be no Christmas to celebrate. And because of his obedience, because of the structure, the social structure of the time, he brought forth, trained the child, Jesus. The child would grow up, right? The child would ultimately be the deliverer. You know, we don't consider it what we call inspired scripture, but in what we call the apocryphal books, which are books that did not make the New Testament canon. And if you grew up Roman Catholic, you're very familiar with the Apocrypha. There's a 400-year silence between Malachi and Matthew. These These are called the intertestamental period. And there are several books that at least pontificate, theologize about Jesus' childhood. One I love is the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus is only eight years old and he's playing hide and go seek behind his parents' house. And as they're playing hide-and-go-seek behind the house, a bird is found by Jesus that's dead. (laughs) And Jesus walks over to it and looks at his friends and says, Watch this, guys. And he grabs the bird in his hands, rubs the back of the head, throws the bird in the air, and the bird takes off flying. Now, it's not inspired scripture. We don't consider it the inspired canon. Don't get me wrong. But as a student of the scripture, I've read many of these through the years. I don't know about you, but every time this year comes around, whether I'm reading a book from the Apocrypha or inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or I'm watching Christmas on the big screens, I always get so mesmerized at the humility of Jesus. I had a moment with the Lord this week, and I know it'll make sense to you if you hear me. I'm praying and walking and the thought just hit me. God came as a zygote. He came as an embryo. I could not shake that thought. He came as an embryo. He could have come in as anything. He comes as a vulnerable embryo. If Mary doesn't put Jesus to her breast, Jesus doesn't live. The vulnerability of God To come to people who are his own. And now he says, Paul says, let the same attitude that was in Christ be in you. 
why not take this Advent season and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and go into your workplace and find people with whom you can share the gospel news. Take yourself in the form of the nature of a servant and share the gospel. Find ways to have the same attitude that Jesus has, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he gave it up. He emptied himself. Why? He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God our Father. What's the Christmas story, Craig? It's the glory of God's story. That's the Christmas story. It's the story that God's story cannot be stopped. And may that same attitude, that same mentality equip our hearts and minds all month long. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.